So we are, believe it or not, all the way up to part 10 of our study. Um, and so it, um, we're going to go through Genesis 1 to 11 in 26 parts. Uh, so we're a little over a third of the way there. Uh, what we're going to learn today, we're going to talk about God's judgment. So God is going to pronounce judgment today. We're also going to see uh, the first prophecy of the coming Messiah in uh, Genesis 3.15. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. And we're going to see at the end of chapter 3 the very sad image of Adam and Eve expelled from the Garden of Eden, the garden that God had prepared especially for them. They end up being expelled from the garden. So, but first let's take a review of what we learned last time. So last time we covered uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 to 13, which was God's court of inquiry. So God, he, he gets to the bottom of what happened. Uh, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Uh, so this, is what, this was the, the actual fall, the events of the fall. Um, Eve is tempted, and the three elements of temptation that we see throughout Scripture uh, are all present for Eve here, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. They both disobey, um, and, but we'll, as we'll see, we'll go into this more today, it's Adam's guilt that's uh, the greater, not the lesser, and it's always Adam uh, that's the one that is indicted for the fall in the rest of Scripture. And we'll talk about why that is today. Um, so once they, but once they sin, they feel guilt and shame for the first time. There was no guilt, there was no shame before sin entered the world. Uh, their eyes are open only in a negative sense. They had already known good. They knew God, so they knew good. Uh, their eyes are open to evil now, um, and that's tragic for them. Uh, God holds court. Um, he gives them opportunities to repent, to confess and repent, uh, but instead they, they blame. They blame others. Um, and so this fall of, uh, uh, that happened, this tempting and fall that happened with Eve and Adam, uh, is the, the, the way of temptation is explained in 1 John chapter 2. Uh, For all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but it's from the world. And that's what we see happen to Eve. Um, and then in James chapter 1, we find out uh, that when we're tempted, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. 
And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And that's the process that we see uh, with Eve in this passage of Scripture. And so all those elements are there. She sees that the tree is good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. It's a delight to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. It's desirable to make one wise. That's the pride of life. And then lust conceives and gives birth to sin and sin to death, as we'll see today. And so we did uh, do a little uh, side note that Jesus was tempted in exactly the same way. The same three elements of temptation are there in the temptation of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Um, And Jesus is able to withstand that temptation. And why was he able to withstand it? He used the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So Jesus is tempted, and in Hebrews uh, chapter 4, it explains to us why that's important. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we can approach the throne of grace because we have Christ who's been tempted as we are, but without sin. That's who we have at the right hand of the Father as our advocate. So um, Eve gives to her husband. It's unclear from the text, as we talked about, uh, where exactly where Adam was standing through the whole process. Uh, He was there for her to hand the fruit at the end. Uh, But what is clear is Adam sinned by disobeying God. So God had told him not to eat the fruit. He ate the fruit. He clearly disobeyed God. Um, And, of course, it's a sad irony that Satan always twists God's good uh, and perfect design. And so God had designed Eve to be a helper to him, and that's who Satan attacked and, and got to Adam through Eve. But Adam's guilt was greater, not less. We see that in the rest of Scripture, as I mentioned, in Romans chapter 5, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. All these places in the New Testament make it uh, crystal clear that it's Adam who was responsible. And we'll talk today, of course, in detail about uh, how that, how that works, uh, the imputation of sin from Adam down to the rest of us. Uh, so it was... Uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, they already knew good. They had experienced good. They had a, a perfect relationship with God who is good. Um, but they wanted more. They wanted more knowledge, more experience. And what they got was an experience an, an experience of evil, um, which was it was not to their betterment. Um, it was not a positive thing for them. Um, up to this time, they had enjoyed it, this perfect fellowship with God. In verse 8, we see that they're hiding from God, um, and they could no longer bear to be in God's presence. And they tried to evade him, um, but God did not avoid them. They were trying to avoid God. God came to, for them and, and would look for them. Uh, obviously, God starts asking questions, and when he's asking these questions, He's not trying to gain information. When he asks Adam where is he, he, it's not because he lost track of Adam. Um, He's he's trying to get Adam to acknowledge and repent for his sin. Um, He he doesn't doesn't catch on when he says where is he, so God asks two more questions, uh, more direct questions uh, to 
in, in an effort to try to get Adam to confess and repent. Um, but he stubbornly refuses, of course. Uh, instead, he blames everyone else, the woman who you gave me. So he blames Eve, and he blames God for giving him Eve. Uh, it can't possibly be Adam's fault, right? It can't be, it can't be my fault. My sin can't be my fault. It's got to be somebody else. It's got to be my upbringing. It's got to be something that somebody else did. It's the environment. It's not, everything's not fair. Life's not fair. That's why I had to sin. Uh, so you can see that that started in the garden, and it continues with people to this day, that we always have to have an excuse or a rationalization for our sin. So it's definitely not Adam's fault, and of course Eve, when she's asked, it's the serpent's fault, so it's definitely not her fault either. So that was what we studied last time, so that's where we left it. So let's pick up the story again in verse 3, and we're going we're gonna to go through the rest, uh, 14 to 24, so we won't really have time to go verse by verse. We're going to have to cover, um, we're going to have to pick and choose here what we go through today. Uh, We're going to talk about the fact that God pronounces judgment and what that judgment is. We're going to see embedded in that judgment the first Messianic prophecy, the Proto-Evangelium. And we're going to see at the end that Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. So here's the scripture that we're going to study. Uh, The first part of it is 14 to 19. This is God's judgments. Uh, and so if you want to open your Bible or your device to uh, Genesis chapter 3 so we can follow along, uh, it goes like this. Starting in verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Harsh. One of the saddest passages in all of Scripture. So, um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we're going to talk about here in this passage. Um, And I just want to point one thing out here. Uh, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. So, is the Bible teaching that that the husband should never listen to the voice of their wife? (laughs) Obviously not. Right? Uh, But... The rest of the verse says, about which I commanded you, you shall not eat from it. So what is it that Eve told him that he should not have listened to? She contradicted God's commandment. So listening to any voice that contradicts God's commandment is obviously wrong. Um, And that's what uh, God is getting at there. Um, Okay, 
the rest of the passage. So after God gives the judgments, then he evicts them from their paradise home in the Garden of Eden. Now the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. So that's our passage, and this is the tragic fall of mankind, the bad news. Uh, So in the first part of the scripture there, uh, from 14 to 19, we have God handing out the punishments. So he held court in uh, the passage from 6 to 13. He did his court of inquiry. Now he passes out the sentences. First is the serpent. The serpent. Uh, is cursed, both Satan and the instrument of deception. Uh, so it's the, both the, the beast and the uh, and the Satan that's inhabiting the beast. So there are other scriptures, of course, that contain punishments for animals: Genesis Genesis nine five, Exodus twenty one twenty eight to twenty nine, Leviticus twenty to fifteen to sixteen. Specify punishment for animals, and there's a punishment for animals here in Genesis chapter three. Uh, chapter 3.15 has the seed that will crush Satan's head is the seed of the woman, which is very curious. Moses, the author, grew up in a highly patriarchal society. All the genealogies in the Bible are male genealogies. Why would the Holy Spirit cause Moses to write it this way? The seed of the woman, not the seed of the man. Why is that? Well, there's two main reasons, of course. The first reason is because that's the way God said it. Because This is an actual event here in the Garden of Eden that happened in real space-time history. God said certain things, and this is the way God said it, that the seed of the woman would crush the head. Now, when God said that, how many people were there in the whole world? Two. Two. So there's no cultures or societies. There's no patriarchal society when God said this, because there's no such thing as a society. There's only two people. Now, by the time Moses writes it down, you know, 1,400 years later or 1,500 years later, whatever it was, more than that, more like uh, more than 2,000 years later, uh, Moses writes it down. Um, the, it was a patriarchal society. And the rest of the scripture, when it does genealogies, does only have male genealogies. So it must have been very curious to Moses and to the people that were reading it uh, at the time, he wrote it down. That why did God do it that way? Why did He say the seed of the woman? Why did what did why that? And so, but we find out, right? We find out with the incarnation in the New Testament when Jesus is born. Jesus is born of a virgin without a human father. And so, what God said six thousand years ago in the garden is absolutely accurate. Seed of the woman. Um, And it must have been very curious for all those patriarchal societies to see that, that that's the way God said it, and that's the way Moses wrote it down for all those thousands of years and hundreds of generations. And then here comes along Jesus, and he's he's born of a virgin without a human father. Um, And so God did it in a perfectly accurate way that 
if you, when you're looking back, you can see, oh yeah, that's why he did it that way. Okay. Uh, so he turns to Eve and he tells her, uh, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. So this is a constant reminder to all mothers in every generation. Uh, those, of the, those of you women who have had kids, you know this firsthand, this part of the curse uh, firsthand. Um, the second part of the curse on Eve is a little more difficult to understand. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What does that mean? So uh, I looked at a number of commentaries about this little phrase, and there was one uh, that was by a very curious man um, that I, I think is probably right. So there's a man named Fruchtenbaum. Uh, his name is Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And Arnold Fruchtenbaum, his, his family was, uh, was from Poland. He's a Jewish family, an Orthodox Hasidic Jewish family in Poland. Hitler invades Poland and they flee to Russia. And Arnold Fruchtenbaum is born in 1943 in Russia. Um, after the, and he's in this Orthodox Hasidic Jewish family um, he, they're of Hebrew scholars. So he studied, he read, write, and reading, writing, and speaking of Hebrew from the time he was in his cradle. His grandfather memorized the entire Tanakh in Hebrew by the time he was 18. The Tanakh is the Hebrew Old Testament. So think about memorizing every word of the Old Testament by the time you're 18. That was his grandfather, Arnold's grandfather. That's who he learned Hebrew from, from the time he was in his cradle. Uh, and then uh, they moved back to Poland, but things weren't so great for Jews in Poland after World War II, so they moved to Czechoslovakia. But then the communists took over Czechoslovakia, so they moved to West Germany. And eventually they immigrated to the U.S. And uh, by the time he was 13, they were living in the Hasidic Jewish section of Brooklyn in New York City. And so here's this young Hebrew scholar studying the Hebrew Old Testament, and he gets a tract from the Chosen People Society, which is a Christian ministry to Jews. And he comes to the realization that Jesus is the Messiah that he reads about in his Hebrew Old Testament. And he, uh, he accepts Christ and he becomes a Christian, much to the consternation of his Orthodox Jewish family who put great pressure on him to renounce his faith, which he does not do. When he graduates from high school, he goes to Cedarville in Ohio, and he studies Hebrew, gets a degree in Hebrew from Cedarville. Then he goes to Dallas Theological Seminary, and he studies Hebrew and Old Testament. And he gets a master's degree in divinity with a concentration in Hebrew. So this is a guy who really, 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 really knows Hebrew from his cradle, speak, reading, writing, speaking, and then by study over decades and decades and decades. And then when he was about 70 years old, he wrote a commentary on Genesis. Um, and this is from his commentary on Genesis. And so here's what he says the Hebrew tells him. The second part of the curse on Eve and all, on all wives descended from her involves the marital relationship. The translation desire seems positive and even romantic in English. But the Hebrew, teshuka, is very negative in context. Coupled with the word rule, mashal, that can be seen from the same combination in Genesis 4-7, which we'll get to, where God uh, solemnly warns Cain 
that sin is crouching at his door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That is the desire, teshuka, is a desire to rule and must be countered with a will to master this desire. And so Fruchtenbaum puts it this way, Therefore the woman is placed into a subordinate role, and the point of 3.16 is that the woman will desire to rule over her husband who is to master her. She will seek to gain authority over the husband, just as sin desired to rule over Cain. However, Adam should master her. Teshuka is a word that emphasizes a desire to possess. The woman chose to act independently of the man, and now she will have a desire to rule and possess him. She shall desire to control the man and to dispute the headship of the husband. Man was already in authority over the woman before the fall, but now she will have a tendency to rebel and try to rule him. That's uh, Arnold Fruchtebaum in his book, the, uh, the book of Genesis, his commentary. So, um, some commentators disagree with this, uh, but this was not, he wasn't the only one who had this opinion. He was just the one whose, whose mastery of Hebrew I trusted the most, uh, to get this information from reading the Hebrew. Uh, so what what uh, what this means, I think, is that uh, that a lot of tension in the marital relationship about who's in charge traces back to the curse. Um, it's a, a cursed and fallen and sin-soaked world, and part of that is this this desire to to be the one that's in charge. So uh, the scripture, of course, goes further in the New Testament and explains the marriage relationship in Ephesians 5. We have wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And then in verse 25 to 28, we have husbands love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Now these two things, both of these, um, people in their fallen state want to have nothing to do with either one of these things. So, um, in in a fallen state, nobody wants to be subject to anyone else. No woman wants to be subject to any man in the fallen state. And likewise, uh, no husband wants to put somebody else's needs in front of your your own. That's what that's what biblical love means. To to it's an act of the will to place somebody else's needs above mine. That's biblical love, and 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 no no man wants any part of that. Put somebody else's needs ahead of mine? No, no, thank you. I, I don't want that. Uh, so, as fallen human beings, it's it's all all of us rebel against this model. Nobody wants to be subject to anyone else, and nobody wants to put anybody else's needs above their own. Um, so, uh, in a fallen state, this is kind of this is really impossible uh, to do. Now, um, and so that's uh, that's the curse on Eve, and then he turns to Adam. And God says in 17 to 19, he speaks to Adam, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Now that seems very curious. Why would the ground be cursed because of something Adam did? 
Well, the, the answer is that God gave dominion over creation in Genesis 1.28. He, he, he made Adam responsible for creation. And when Adam fell, the whole creation suffered because of it and continues to suffer. Uh, and we see that explicitly in the New Testament in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 19, says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so this is a, a very clear statement in the New Testament of this reality that, that uh, God cursed when, he, when Adam sinned and Adam was responsible for the whole creation. God cursed the whole creation. Um, cursed is the ground because of you. And we see that in Romans 8. Uh, the next part of the, of, the, uh, of the curse for Adam is in toil you will eat, uh, that the cursed ground is going to bring forth thorns and thistles. Um, and so this tells us that probably agriculture would have been much, much, much easier uh, without the curse. Uh, now it's a big toil uh, to get the ground to grow what you want it to grow. Uh, the last part of his curse um, in 319 at the very end is physical death. So he's already experienced spiritual separation. He, he, he's hiding from God, the presence of God, right away. Uh, his relationship, spiritual relationship with God is broken. But here in 319, God says, and you're going to physically die as well. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we learned in... Genesis 2.7, that, that Adam was made from the dust of the ground. And here in 3.19, God tells Adam, and you're going to return to dust. You're going to die. You're going to physically die, and your body's going to turn to dust. So there would be no point, of course, in this particular punishment of physical death if physical death was already present before the fall. Um, and so uh, the scripture calls death the last enemy, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so there are many misinterpretations of Genesis, and many of them involve death before sin. So any, any of the, the long-age interpretations of Genesis, um, the old earth views of progressive creation and theistic evolution, they all include death before sin. And that's a theological problem with what God has done here. Um, God included physical death as part of the punishment for sin. That would make no sense if physical death was around before that sin. Yes? Thinking do they have, or what proof, if you will, do they have that there was death before sin? Is there something they point to specifically? So, so um, if, you, if you believe in a, a, a long span of time, right. then you believe that the, the fossil record, for example, shows what happened over millions of years. And that fossil record has all sorts of death before, um, before in their view, you have Adam and Eve. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and that fossil record 
very clearly shows death. It shows uh, there's actual fossils of of uh, animals eating each other that were buried as they were eating each other. Um, there's also fossil evidence of bone cancer in, in animals. Um, so all that stuff would have had to have been around in God's very good world at the end of creation in Genesis 131. Yes? What, what is assumed to be the extent of the curse? Uh, does it extend to the plant and animal kingdom also? Uh, yes. Yeah, yes, yes. So um, you have to be careful about what death meant in Hebrew. Um, and so things like plants aren't alive in, 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 the, in the nefesh hayah. Nefesh hayah is living being in Hebrew. And it so only... It, it, would not be considered. Right, and it, and it only, that word living being only applies to things that have blood, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, not so not insects and not plants. Plants don't have blood. So so plants are not nefesh hayah. So they're not subject to death. The, this word, this Hebrew word for death, means death of something that has blood in it. Um, and so, yes, the plants could have died. And plants were eaten by both men and animals. Um, but that that's not. So that's not, we're, we're not using the modern scientific definition of living and dying. We're using the ancient Hebrew definition of living and dying. It's important to understand that when you read this, uh, that, that not, not to try to import modern, um, modern definitions of words that, that don't apply uh, in this. Yes, Doug? But when I get to the curses here, it's all of a sudden indented differently. Yes. Yes. So yes, he he spoke in um, in a structured way, um, and so yes, most of Bibles will have that um, have that cordoned off as uh, lines that God spoke that are um, um, they're spoken in a structure uh, in a he, in the Hebrew. They're spoken in a structure that uh, that makes it so that we can know that this is a line. And this starts another line, and this starts another line. So yes, that's that's good. It's a good point. So if you're looking at the Bible, most I th- most English translations will section off all that God spoke and put it as um, a, a series of lines. Um, and so you, you can actually go back and what I what I read to you, um, I did. Um, I left the capitalizations in. Uh, so, uh, because you have because you've done this, and then capital C for cursed, that's a separate line in in most Bibles. Uh, cursed are you more than all the cattle, and then it's a capital A for and. Mm-hmm. In most Bible, that's another line. I didn't do it that way because I couldn't fit it on the page uh, on the slide that way. But th- yes, that's that's correct. So, um, I wouldn't say that it's uh, strictly poetry, but it's written in a structured way. Like that, so it's it's set, set of lines, and um, that that are there's some parallelism there, um, and because it's in a Hebrew structure like that, most English translations put it uh, indented and and with uh, capital letters at the beginning of each phrase. And I left the capital letters in there. I didn't I didn't put them in the in the structure like that, but yeah, it should probably it should be in the structure like that.
Good point. Yes, we'll talk about that here in a second. So there's some there's some structure to what God said, and he's, he's actually addressing the beast first and then Satan, and then um, there's this enmity brought forward all the way to the seed, and the seed is Jesus. Eventually the seed will be Jesus. And so there's this enmity between the seed, who is Jesus, and Satan, who is the adversary. And so, but the, but the end of 315 is that he crushes the head of the adversary. And so eventually, as we see in the book of Revelation, that adversary is chucked into the lake of fire. So that's the end of the story. The end of the story is, first he's, uh, by his work on the cross, he, he removes the power of death from Satan. Uh, we, in Revelations 1, I, I have the keys to death and to Hades. And, but it's not until the book of Revelation that we see Satan cast into the lake of fire. But that battle is the battle between Christ and Satan, and Satan, Christ wins, and Satan, his power is crushed by the cross, um, and he is finally tossed into the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. Yeah, but, yeah, and, not but, yeah, and, it wrapped up in this whole story here, is the sin introduces enmity between mankind and God. Yes. And that crushing of Satan doesn't do anything about that, but it removes this enmity and creates peace between mankind and God. Well, yes, but of course the cross pays for the sins of all who will believe. Um, And so the cross is the finished work of, of Christ on the cross is the payment. So when, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says to die. it is finished. The payment is finished for all sin, for all who believe in him from, uh, from the beginning of time all the way to the end of time. Um, so the payment is finished. Now, you, you do still have Satan around. I mean, that's a good point. You still have Satan who's the accuser of the believers. He's, uh, he's the enemy. He's the father of lies. He's still around. He's still causing trouble if you will, uh, all the way until he gets tossed into the lake of fire. Uh, But fortunately we know from the book of Revelation, he's going to be tossed into the lake of fire. Uh, So yeah, so you're right in that he's still around. Yeah, he's still around until he gets tossed into the lake of fire. Um, Okay, Uh, good point. We're going to talk about that a little bit more here in a minute. Um, the, The bad news and the good news. So we have the first animal death occurring immediately in 321. Uh, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. So in order to make garments of skin, that's an animal sacrifice. So an animal death occurs right away uh, after the sin and the judgment for sin. We get a, an animal death. Uh, and then finally in t- uh, verse 22 to 24, God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden never to return. That that word uh, drove or drives is very harsh. Uh, they don't just kind of, um, you can go now, that sort of thing. He, God drives them out of the garden in a very harsh way. <coughs> and, of course, he puts a guard there, um, the, the, the cherubim with the flaming sword to guard the entrance. Um, so uh, that's the whole story, but I would have focused down on two things. Um, uh, I want to talk about the bad news first and then the good news. So uh, typically, the pattern in the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters, 
when he's giving the gospel, he typically gives the bad news first. Why do we need the gospel? Um, and I'm going to do the same thing here. So the bad news and the good news. So the bad news. What, what, uh, so Adam and Eve had a really bad day. They sin. They get this judgment of God. They're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Well, so what? What, what difference does that make to me that Adam and Eve had a really bad day 6,000 years ago? Uh, why should I be concerned about the fact that Adam and Eve had a bad day 6,000 years ago? Well, the reason is because of the imputation of sin. And there are a number of views on the imputation of sin. Uh, what, what difference does it make that Adam and Eve sinned a long time ago? Uh, the four main views through history, I'll give you two uh, ridiculous heresies first and then two uh, possible real, real ones after that. Uh, the Pelagian view... Uh, people incur death when they sin after Adam's example. So sin affected Adam alone, doesn't affect anyone else, no one affected by Adam's sin. This is what Unitarians believe. Uh, we don't want to be in the same camp as the Unitarians. There's, then there's the Arminian view. Uh, all people consent to Adam's sin, uh, then sin is imputed. So Adam sinned and partially affected humanity, but depravity is not total. People received corrupt nature from Adam, but not guilty or culpable for his sin. Uh, this is the view of Methodist, Wesleyan's, Pentecostals, and holiness groups. Um, those things are things that I think are contrary to other parts of Scripture. So then we get to the two views that, uh, that good and godly people, I think, can disagree on. So one is the federal view, sometimes federal headship, um, and then it's the Augustinian view, some kind of, sometimes called the seminal view um, uh, as well. Uh, so the federal view is sin is imputed to humanity because of Adam's sin. Adam alone sinned, but human race affected because he was the head of the human race. So depravity is total in this view. Sin and guilt are imputed. Uh, this is the Presbyterian view, the, the, the traditional view of, the, of covenant theology. The Augustinian view, uh, sin is imputed to humanity because of Adam's sin, and human, humanity actually sinned in Adam that they were, we were all present in Adam, in Adam's loins when he sinned. So we were there, committing the sin with Adam. That's the Augustinian view. Depravity is total once again, same. Sin and guilt are imputed, same. Uh, this is the Reformers and, uh, and Calvinists. And so let me just take a look at these two views. So the first one is the federal view, or federal headship, originally propounded by Cochesus, Cochius, sorry, in the 1600s became a standard belief in the Reformed theology. It was taught by Charles Hodge and Buswell and Burkhoff, and it's what MacArthur teaches. If you read MacArthur's uh, uh, biblical theology, this is what he teaches, uh, the federal view. Uh, called the federal view because Adam is seen as the federal head or representative of the entire human race. Also called representative headship or federal headship. Those terms are sometimes used for this same view, the federal view. It asserts that the action of a representative is determinative for all members united to him. So we are all descendants of Adam. He was our federal head. He sinned, therefore um, we are imputed with his sin. When Adam sinned, he represented all people. Therefore, his sin is reckoned to his descendants. Adam's sin plunges the entire human race into suffering and death. Those who affirm the federal view appeal to the parallels made with Jesus in Romans chapter 5. 
So Romans chapter 5, starting verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the, into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. And it continues, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the one, on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So this is the idea that in Adam all sinned. Um, and so his, his guilt is imputed to us. In addition to our sin nature, we're also guilty. Uh, because we're descendants of Adam. Um, now, that's one view, the federal view. The other view, that's and, and that's entirely uh, consistent, I think, with Orthodox Christianity. The other view is the Augustinian view, which I think is also compatible with Orthodox Christianity. So I think good and godly people can believe both of these, federal head and Augustinian view. So... The view is named after Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, uh, who lived 354 to 430 A.D. It was taught by Calvin, by Luther, by Shedd, by Strong, um, this view, uh, the Augustinian view. Uh, it, it's been, it has other terms associated with it. It's sometimes called the seminal view. Uh, MacArthur calls it the realism view, uh, the fact that people, we were all really present there with Adam in his loins uh, at the fall. Uh, it asserts that they were in Adam, in seed form, when he sinned, all people. This view teaches that the statement, all sinned in Romans 5.12, the end of Romans 5.12, suggests that since all humanity were in Adam's loins, they participated in Adam's sin. And since everyone participated in Adam's sin, all people are morally guilty and condemned. Thus, both the corrupt nature and also the guilt are passed down naturally from Adam. Those who affirm the Augustinian view appeal to the story of Abraham and Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7. So Hebrews chapter 7, this was after um, the, uh, the, the four kings defeated five kings, and Abraham and his uh, servants got together, defeated the four kings, and took the plunder. And then they gave a tenth of the plunder to this man Melchizedek. And Hebrews 7 talks about that incident. It says, For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was, first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. 
That's what Melchizedek means. And then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed are the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, also, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, Melchizedek is not a, from the line of Aaron, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. And, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he, Levi, was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So what the Hebrew 7 is saying is, Levi, who was the priest who was supposed to collect the tenth, paid the tenth to Melchizedek because when Abraham paid the tenth to Melchizedek, Levi, who was his distant descendant, was in the loins of Abraham. Okay. So, And so the people that believe the Augustinian view say, this pattern is the same as we see with Adam, that all of us were in Adam's loins when he sinned. That's the Augustinian view. So that's the two main orthodox views of the imputation of sin and why it, it matters that Adam and Eve sinned and therefore we're all guilty. No, it's a little bit different from that. It's the fact that Adam is the considered the head of the household of humanity. The head of the household of humanity sinned and therefore the whole household of humanity is guilty. One of the, one of the things that... Uh, the federal people will, will point to is the story of Achan. So Achan, that's where Josh, in the book of Joshua, when the, uh, the Israelites were trying to take the city of Ai and they were slaughtered, and it was because Achan had stolen some stuff. Mm-hmm. But, but God didn't just kill Achan, he killed Achan and his whole household. Mm-hmm. Um, so they say that's the same pattern. There's Adam, and Adam is the head, the federal head, over the entire household of humanity. He sins, the whole house of humanity is um, responsible. Yeah? Um, I think the, the point of the difference is that whether we inherit only the sin nature or do we inherit the sin nature and the guilt of the sin, I think is the difference between the two. Is that right? So, um, so the, the, it's, it's the idea that... Um, as the as the head, that, that this is how God reckons it. That if the if somebody that's responsible for it uh, does it, then the the whole his, his the whole everything under him is going to be held responsible. Uh, another example of that is the curse of the creation. Why does the creation get cursed because Adam did something wrong? Well, the reason is because Adam was made responsible for the creation. He was given dominion over the creation, and then the creation is cursed. The creation didn't do anything, and it's the same way, the, the federal view would say, that the, the rest of everybody else, of course, everybody sins, and so it's both and, really. It's you're, you're guilty, and you're also guilty, because you also sin. It's both. Uh, but you also imputed the guilt of Adam, one way or the other, one, both of these views. Yeah. My understanding, 
and I might be out in left field and wrong about this, is that the net, the net from both the federal and the seminal view is the same. Yes. Here's the difference right here in the second column. Adam alone sinned, but human race affected because of the federal headship. In this view, humanity sinned along with Adam. You were in Adam's loins, and so you sinned along with Adam. And I sinned along with Adam because I was in his loins, participating in his sin. That's the difference. Yeah, go ahead. I don't know if this helps and correct me if it's a bad uh, illustration, but like ambassadors, people we want to send to countries, we want them to be men of good character and, and because they represent them because whatever they do bad reflects upon us and so that would be the federal view in my opinion <clears throat> and then the other one would be Adam had DNA we have the exact same DNA maybe the switches are turned different but we have the same 23 chromosomes so that's where the, the other view comes in yeah so how the, I, how <clears throat> there's a bunch of different analogies that can be used like that um, but the, the bottom line, as, as Doug said, the bottom line is, in, in, if you look in the third column there, depravity is total, sin and guilt are, are imputed. Depravity is total, sin and guilt are imputed. Uh, they, they both end in the same place. Depravity is total, sin and guilt are imputed. Uh, yes, Rachel. <clears throat> right, the, the parallel from Romans 5 is, is really what the, the federal view hangs on as, as far as a, a New Testament scripture because um, we didn't die on the cross, right? Jesus died on the cross, but his death on the cross and his just life, we didn't live his righteous life, but those are imputed to us even though we didn't do it. Um, and in the same way, the federal view says, we didn't. We weren't in the garden with Adam. We didn't commit his sin, but his guilt and um, um, and sin are imputed to us in the same way that Christ's just justification and righteousness are imputed to us, even though we didn't do it. Uh, yeah. Are those two viewpoints in conflict with each other? And the reason why I ask is, could it be both of them at the same time? So um, it, there's a subtle difference here in in this call. So the, di the difference is whether you were there or not participating in the sin. So in the seminal view or the uh, Augustinian view, you were there. Uh, just like um, when Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek, Levi was there in the loins of his ancestor giving the tenth to Melchizedek. It's a subtle difference, uh, but they, they, I think the bottom line is they get to the same place. In column number three, they both believe in, people that believe in both of these views believe in total depravity that, and that sin and guilt are imputed to all of us. They get to the same place. Uh, yes, Pastor Gabe. The federal view, I think, has a pretty exact uh, parallel between Adam and Christ as a representative. Mm -hmm. that, the Augustinian view doesn't work both ways. And so I'm curious, since you probably have studied this more recently than I have, do you recall if those who hold to the Augustinian view would, how they would answer the objection, well, wait a minute, are you saying that in Christ we actually were living righteously? No, no, they say that the, they, what they really say is that the, the parallel is good, but it's not, you can't make the parallel, you can't stretch the parallel that far, okay. is what they would say. So, yes, I definitely found uh, good, solid commentaries that, 
that argued passionately for both of these exactly. views. And, and the same thing with Romans. You see the same thing in the commentators yeah. of Romans. Yeah. But I, I, I would point out once again, column number three here. Right. They both get to right. depravity is total, sin and guilt are imputed to us. Um, and that's the, the most important theological fact that comes from the imputation of sin. Um, okay, uh, let me. Uh, we only have a few minutes. Let me get to the Proto Evangelium. So, the first gospel. So, verse 14, 14 makes clear that God is speaking to the serpent, talking about crawling on the belly and eating dust. That's what the animal's doing, not Satan. Verse 15, he switches to condemn from the serpent to Satan because what he's talking about in verse 15 is curse, he curses Satan to be forever at war against mankind, depicted as the seed or offspring of the woman. The woman in question, in a general sense, is Eve herself, uh, all of whose offspring will forever be harassed by Satan and his minions. But more specifically, the offspring that 315 is talking about is Jesus Christ, who was born of a woman, but not of Eve herself. Although, we'll see, when we get to Genesis chapter 4, there's, there's indications, I think, that Eve thinks that um, that. that when when her children are born, those are going to be the children that 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 crush Satan. Uh, that she thinks that that first generation that's that's going to be it. Uh, but no, that's not right. It's it's many generations later, and it's not Eve. It's uh, Mary. <clears throat> so the enmity or hostility and hatred here are between Satan and Christ. It's a war between the seed of the woman who is Christ um, and Satan. Uh, the seed of the serpent, evil men, and demonic forces struck at the heel of the Savior with Judas, the Pharisees, the gravel of the crowd, the Romans. They conspire to condemn Christ to crucifixion, but his wound was not the final act. He rises again on the third day, having paid the price for the sin of all who would ever believe in him. So the ultimate victory was Christ. He crushed the head of Satan, removing forever his rule over men. The power of Christ would destroy Satan and all his principalities and powers, confound all his schemes, and ruin his works. Um, so the power of the cross crushes Satan's whole empire, strips him of his authority, particularly his power over death, and his tyranny over the bodies and souls of men. Um, all this was done by the incarnate Christ when he suffered and died for men. Uh, because of what Christ did on the cross, he crushed the devil's head, defeating him. So the Proto-Evangelium... Uh, in Romans 3.15 shows us that God always had the plan of salvation in mind. And he informed people, the first two people, of his plan as soon as sin entered the world. So it, it's part of the judgment, part of the uh, God's judgment for the sin. He, he, he discloses this plan, the very first Proto-Evangelium, right there embedded in the judgment. Um, he had it in mind all along, and he, he disclosed it to people as soon as the, it was necessary, as soon as the judgment made it, uh, made it so that it was necessary. Um, and, of course, we have in 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So what do we learn today? We learned that God pronounces judgment. Uh, we see embedded in the judgment this first messianic prophecy and then, of course, at the very end, Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. So we have, once again, seven minutes. That seems to be a pattern. I can finish with seven minutes left. So seven, seven minutes to, uh, to ask questions. Yes? Uh, I find it curious that Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, and then the 
but evil was already in the world before uh, with Satan. So were there curses, do you think, that applied after Satan? Yeah, so we don't know that, and um, the only way we could know it is if God revealed it in His Word, and He chose not to reveal it in His Word. And so, um, yeah, it's it's a, I mean, it's a good question. What what did God do when Satan fell? What was his, what was his series of judgments? And one can imagine perhaps he had a situation like that where he gave a series of uh, judgments to Satan, but we just don't know. There's no uh, there's no record in Scripture of. The, Yes, Pastor Gabe. Just one insight that I thought was helpful from one of my old um, professors is that as much as we talk about this section as curses, there's a sense, there's a very real sense in which it's a great blessing because had God not done those things or declared those things, uh, we would be living forever uh, in a sinful state. Yeah. And so God brought the limitations of lifespan, limitations of uh, childbirth frequency and whatnot so that uh, we're, uh, we're not running free in, our, in sin yeah. or in Yeah, that's a good point. We, I had to pick and choose, and I, uh, we, I didn't really go into very much the very end where he throws them out of the garden. And, and he gives the reason why he throws them out of the garden, so that they wouldn't eat from the tree of life and live forever. And live forever in this, in this fallen state. Uh, and so, as Pastor Gabe points out, that's a blessing that he did that. He, he, he tossed them out before they could eat from the tree of the garden, uh, of the, of the tree of life, which would have locked them in forever <laughs> into this state of separation from God. And so, yes, that's a definitely a blessing. Yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> you seem to at least spark that thought in my mind, or some sort of inference of eating from the tree of life could end up with you know living forever. And maybe the effect of that first apple was the first couple generations living close to a thousand years. Well, it, well, the, the, so the tree of life is not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, so we'll talk more when we get to uh, Genesis chapter 5 about the longevity and what it means and why it is and why it went down. Um, we have some pretty good um, answers in modern genetics. So if you think about Adam and Eve's genome, it was perfect. There was no mistakes in it. There have been something like uh, 300, uh, about 300 new point mutations per person per generation uh, is the measured rate of decay of the human genome. So you start with a perfect one, and you, you add mutations. Um, and most importantly, you add a population bottleneck. And so when you study population genetics, a population bottleneck is a catastrophe for the genome of a species. Um, and we had a population bottleneck down to eight people at the flood. And immediately you see the ages come down uh, after the flood because you had a population bottleneck, and that's a genetic catastrophe. Uh, yeah. So it makes sense from a uh, modern genetics can shed some light on God's truth that has been revealed for ever. So God's truth is God's truth, and God's truth stands by itself. We can get some additional insights into what happened with God's truth from modern genetics. Okay, uh, any other questions? Two minutes left. Don't want to waste the last two minutes. Okay, let me close this with prayer. 